for 37-year-old Laura Silver. It was another day of waiting in the blazing sun outside a small market in her home of Caracas, Venezuela. It was 9.30 in the morning. She had been standing in line since 6.30. Uh, she was surrounded by mounds of garbage that littered the streets due to the infrequent uh, government pickup of the trash. Her goal for the day, to purchase two chickens, a carton of eggs, a small brick of cheese, if she was lucky, a few guavas, all of which she planned to use over the course of the next five days to feed her family of six. Now, just as the line begins to, to move, uh, there's a spark over her head and a, and a, and a power line uh, breaks and, and basically the block goes dark. And it's just a, another power outage that has become more and more frequent over the last few years there in Caracas. Now, fortunately, somehow the cash register in the market is continuing to operate, and eventually, Laura, she exits the, the room or the, the market with a small sack of food and a government-provided box of hygiene products that was designed to mitigate the effects of the economic crisis that had been devastating Venezuela for nearly a decade. Now, living a, a life of poverty wasn't the way that things had normally been for Laura. Years earlier, she and her husband were members of the middle class, and they're living in the most prosperous country in all of South America. They had vast oil reserves in that country, vibrant farms, teeming businesses, and they coupled that with, with the power of the free market, and Venezuela was the crown jewel of South America. Back then, the times were good. Laura was an individual who, who worked in a store where they traded uh, precious metals. Her husband was a contractor between the two of them. Uh, they had plenty of money uh, to not only support their family, but they had money left over. Yet, in the midst of Venezuela's prosperity, a cancer was growing, one that began to turn at the beginning of the new millennium when the government of socialist Hugo Chavez began to systematically take over vast portions of the economy under the guise of helping the poor. During the Chavez regime, nearly 13 million acres of farmland were confiscated from the rightful owners, as well as over 500 privately owned businesses were gobbled up by the government from bicycle manufacturers to cell phone providers, to milk producers, to hotel chains. And that was all on top of a, an oil industry that, that was nationalized back in the mid-70s. It was socialism run rampant, and it didn't take long for it to ultimately collapse. By 2015, 70% of the government-run companies were bleeding cash. Food production had fallen by 75%, yet the population had increased by 33%. To make matters worse, the, oil, the worldwide oil prices had crashed, further devastating the Venezuelan economy. Chavez's government and that of his successor 
Nicolas Maduro, tried every socialist economic principle they could find to stop the bleeding. They, they increased payrolls. They cut prices so that they were selling things below cost. They flooded the economy with freshly printed money. But it was all futile. You see, the die was cast. Power grids failed. Water service was interrupted. Oil production dropped to next to nothing. These government-owned countries, most, or companies, most of them went bankrupt. Inflation soared. Welfare programs collapsed. Shelves emptied. And black markets exploded and corruption ran unrestrained. To this very day, as we stand here or sit here in this room, hardworking, good people like Laura and her husband continue to suffer greatly. So much so that today, 90% of Venezuelans live in poverty. In 2017, the average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds due to food scarcity. 30% of the children younger than five are malnourished. And over 4 million of Venezuelans, 32 million people have fled the country in an effort to simply survive. And tragically, for most of us, Venezuelans' problems, they're just a, a, another headline that appears on our smartphone news feed, or perhaps we catch a little three-minute clip on CNN or Fox News. But the rampant uh, suffering in Venezuela, while it might escape our view, it doesn't escape God's notice. See, God cares about the affairs of nations, and he especially cares about the plight of the poor. Psalm 113 testifies to that. It says this, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. You see, God cares about the poor and the needy, and in his word, we are called to do the same. God cares about economics. He cares about money and possessions. So much so that he devotes 2,300 verses in the Bible to the topic, more than verses on faith and prayer combined. And as such, how you and I view economics and how we manage our money and possessions and how we use our resources to help those who are less fortunate than ourselves, it speaks volumes about what we believe about God and about the reality of our relationship with him. And my goal this morning is to provide you with a biblical perspective on economics and poverty. And like that uh, remarkable message that Pastor Ben shared uh, last week, uh, he had told you uh, that the topic of, of race was was huge. Well, so is the topic of poverty. I'm only going to scratch the surface uh, this morning. There are going to be other things and other issues that perhaps some of you are, are going to want to talk about. I'd be happy to do that uh, offline. Uh, but today I'm going to have to ask you to, to give me a little bit of grace. So we'll give you the, uh, you know, the 30,000 uh, foot view 
of economics and poverty from a biblical perspective. Well, in order to get started, we are going to focus on a, on a passage of Scripture that actually it lays the foundation upon which uh, one needs to build a, a, a biblical view of economics and a biblical view of poverty. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app with you, uh, go ahead and make your way to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to begin with verse 15. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, there's someone on the tables around the room. You can just kind of whisper down the line and someone will pass one to you. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 15. If you were able to stand in honor of God's word, would you please do so? This will be a familiar passage to most people. Exodus 20, starting in verse 15. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The foundational principle of biblical economics is found in verses 15 and 17, the 8th and 10th commandment. You shall not steal, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. In these two passages and in many others throughout Scripture, what we see is that the Bible regularly assumes and reinforces a system in which property, be it land, homes, or simply stuff, belongs to individuals, not to the government, or society as a whole. Because biblical economics, it begins with a principle that private property is in the hands of the individual. You see, the very fact that the Eighth Commandment tells us not to steal assumes that God intends for property to belong to individual people, not as society as a whole. So I can't go out into that parking lot right now and, and look through all of those cars and decide for myself, I'm just going to take one because I like it, because they're not my car other than that 2003 Buick that doesn't heat very well that's sitting down in the corner of the parking lot right now. I can't take those other cars because they're not mine. They're actually yours. But God doesn't stop there. In the 10th commandment, he tells us not only are we not allowed to steal other people's stuff, we're not even to, to desire to steal people's stuff. So let's just say that, that next week one of you pulls up in one of those sweet Tesla Model S performance versions with ludicrous mode. Zero to 60. Think about this. Zero to 60 in 2.5 seconds. Or maybe you're not a, 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 you know, one of those uh, people who likes Teslas. Maybe you're, you pull up in your, your Ford F-250 Platinum Crew Cab, eight-foot bed that can haul 7,850 pounds in the bed. The Bible tells me that I'm not even allowed to desire to steal that because it belongs to somebody else. And of course, the principles of private property 
They extend beyond the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus 22, verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. In other words, I can't go over to your house with my pet goat and let it graze in your yard because I'm going to be stealing from you. In the same way, Deuteronomy 19 teaches that I can't wake up one morning at 413 Lashmere Drive and, and look over at my neighbor Mike Cousins' house and say, you know what, I would like my yard to be larger and Mike Cousins' yard to be smaller, so I'm going to pull up the pins that mark the boundaries, and I'm going to move those pins further on to what was his property, which now becomes my property, because Deuteronomy 19 says this, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark in which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. However, the Bible reminds us that while we might be the earthly owners of property, that God is the ultimate owner. In Psalm 24, we read, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and establishes it upon the rivers. You see, God owns it all, but in his grace, he grants you and I the privilege of stewarding over the land which ultimately is his, which he has entrusted us. But there is a problem with all of this. In countries that are governed by economic systems, like communism and some forms of socialism, People aren't allowed to own property. Everything or most everything or most of everything belongs to the government. And God warned us of this possibility in 1 Samuel. In the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the Israelites, they are living under a theocracy. In other words, uh, basically a priest is calling the shots under the authority of God. And the ancient Jews, they didn't like the idea that they, they had this theocracy. They, all the other nations had kings, and, and, and they have this theocracy. They don't like it, and so they complained to God, and they complained to Samuel. They're like, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And this is how God warns them about their desire for a king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, there will be the, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young flocks and your donkeys and put them to work. He will, make, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. 
See, what God is telling us is the natural tendency of any government is to take more for itself because the more that government controls property and things, the more that government controls people. And that is why in verse 17 of 1 Samuel, it says that you shall be his slaves. This is exactly how the slave masters of the past controlled their slaves. Here in America, they didn't allow slaves to own land. They didn't allow them to accumulate possessions. They even took their children from them because it was all about control. And whenever private ownership of property is limited or forbidden, the people's freedom of opportunity is limited or forbidden. Now, this brings us to a very interesting question, because if everything is ultimately God's, why in the world would God want you and I to control any part of it? Well, you see, God allows us to control his property, to be stewards of his stuff, because he has created us in his image. And in Ephesians 5, he says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, as Christians, we are to imitate the way that God actually works so that the world might see who God is. We are to use that which he has entrusted to us to demonstrate his creativity and his love and his kindness and his mercy and his fairness and his generosity and grace to a watching world. And just as God has graciously shared his possessions with us, he's calling us to graciously share our possessions with others. However, you and I sharing possessions with others, folks, that's where it breaks down. That's where the problem comes in. You see, private ownership works great until self-interest and greed take over. And then it all completely falls apart. Rather than being generous with the things that God has entrusted to us, our natural tendency is to hoard them or to consume them all for ourselves and not share them with anyone else. And I'm going to develop this thought here in a few minutes as we move on, but let me go to my second point here. You see, private property, it's gained through opportunity and work. That's the way that we get private property. We have opportunity, and then because we have this opportunity, we do the work to execute upon that opportunity, and we gain private property. In the first chapter of Genesis, before sin enters the world, God determined that human beings were to be productive that everyone was supposed to be a worker. In Genesis 1, we read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. Theologian Wayne Grudem uh, shows us that the, the key word in that entire passage is the word subdue. 
Within the pages of the Bible, when you see the term subdue, it conveys the idea that as human beings created in God's image, that we are to investigate and understand and use and enjoy the resources of this earth. And because this passage and this command was given prior to the fall, prior to having sin enter the world, it teaches us that developing and producing more and better goods from the earth is not simply a result of greed or wrongful materialism or sin, but something that is good that God planned for human beings to do from the very beginning. You see, developing and producing more and better goods, it's accomplished through this four-letter word that begins with W called work. And regardless of our ability, every human being is called to be a worker. Many of us get paid for work. Others might do volunteer work. Still others work by raising a family. We may be retired, but God still wants us to work. He wants us to be productive, whether we get money or not. And even those who have some type of physical or intellectual or emotional struggle are called to work. It might be different than the way that others do it. It might not be at the same level of productivity, but it is work nonetheless, and work gives people something that they desperately need called dignity. And only in rare cases of extreme physical, intellectual, or emotional challenges should a person not work. And as such, we shouldn't be surprised that God is completely unimpressed when we are sedentary or lazy. Listen to 2 Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You see, in God's economy, work is the means by which wealth is generated. And, and we live in a culture that, 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 that somehow thinks that, that wealth is a, a, a problem. But in and of itself, wealth is, is not bad. When used properly, when used to bring glory to God, wealth is an amazing resource. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that wealth is a gift from God. 
Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. You see, wealth gives us the ability to provide food and shelter and clothing and health care and other essential needs for our family. But the use of wealth doesn't just stop with us. The Bible also commands us to use our wealth to provide for the needs of others. First Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Last fall, during uh, part of our Genesis message series, I told you that, normally, that, that practically every person in this room is among the wealthiest 1% of all of the people in the world. If you remember, this is what I said. If your family brings in $32,000 a year, you are among the richest 1% of all of the people in the world. That means that every one of us should be wildly generous. We shouldn't consume everything that we have on ourselves. We should be generous with the money and the resources that God has entrusted to us, and not just to this church family, but to members of our, our own personal families and our neighbors and our coworkers and even the occasional stranger. And at this point, allow me to stop and provide you with a warning. It is here at this very moment at 9.56 in the morning, on whatever today's date is, that some of you are going to get very, very, very angry with me. So this is what I thought we would do to make this easy for you, all right? On the screen is my email address. You don't got to look it up. You can write it down right now. I, I respond to them all. Sometimes I'm a little delayed, but just want to get that out there. That's how you get a hold of me. Don't put a B after the mic because Mike B will send you to Mike Bongo's email address. I should have actually put his up there. I could have probably got away with that. You see, if we are the wealthiest 1% of the world's income producers and we are consuming 100% of all that we have on ourselves, on our needs, on paying our debts, we have a very, very, very serious problem. It is called greed and selfishness. That we can't get by on 95 or 90% of what we earn so that we can be generous with other people is a sign of our spiritual immaturity and our lack of trust in the God of the universe to provide for our needs.
And similarly, if we're making six figures and we're living on 90% of our income and we're giving 10% of it away and we are thinking that we are possibly pleasing God, think again. Is that all that God could possibly expect from us? To do the very bare minimum of giving? I think not. Listen to the words of the prophet Haggai, who was writing to to God's people who had been held in captivity in in the nation of Babylon for decades. They, They returned to the city of Jerusalem, and when they return, they are so focused on themselves They're not focused on the things of God at all. And this is what Haggai says to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And folks, this has nothing to do with giving money to Living Water Community Church right now. I want to clarify this. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You ever feel like that? I know I felt like that. Are we making good money and it still doesn't seem to to be enough? Are we not satisfied with what we have? Do we feel that we're empty? Does it seem like we're spinning our wheels? Do we long for a different home or a different car or a different job or a different hobby? Are we discontent in the midst of that which is clearly prosperity? Perhaps we're living in paneled homes or God's house lies in ruins. Perhaps we aren't enjoying the fruits of our labor because people in our community are living in poverty and we don't give a rip. Perhaps we're turning a blind eye to the injustice that actually is holding people down. Perhaps we're ignorant to the failed feel-good government systems that provide just enough resources to keep people trapped and the cycle of poverty. Perhaps we don't even know about the payday lenders that are in our community that charge the poor astronomical rates of interest or the furniture or appliance rental shops that exploit the people, the poor, by having them get a, get a sofa that they, they rent for, for 30 bucks a week and the sofa's only worth $300, and the people are, are paying 30 bucks a week for three years? Do we know about the slumlords in our community who collect rent from people in our church family and never fix these people's homes? Roofs leak, 
water heaters don't work, the heating system doesn't heat the house, and the landlord collects the money and lets the person suffer. See, brothers and sisters, if we are to honor God, we must turn our eyes away from all of our own wants and focus upon the needs of others. And this brings me to my final point, that those living in poverty are our responsibility and not anyone else's. See, perhaps the primary reason that we're not generous to the poor is because we think they're somebody else's problem. We drive through our cities in our rural areas, and, and we do business, and, and we shop, and, and, and we go, you know, through this place or that place on the way to, to some kind of fun event or whatever, and we see the rundown houses, and we see the dirty streets, and we see the despair on the faces of little boys and little girls and men and women. We see the homeless guy sleeping in the streets. We see the lady begging outside the convenience store, and we think to ourselves, where in the world is the city? Where in the world is the county? Where in the world is the state? Where in the world is the federal government? Or we say to ourselves, when are these people who live in the midst of this squalor, when are they going to get their act together? When will they tidy up their neighborhood? When will they take responsibility for their own lives? Or maybe we think just a little bit more globally. Maybe we see people suffering because war or natural disasters. Maybe we see the weak exploited by the powerful. Or we see the, the favelas in, in Brazil that are teeming uh, with just huge slums and things like that. And we say to ourselves, man, I am so glad I live in America. When is somebody going to do something about all of this global poverty? But have you ever taken the time to consider that it's actually you and I might perhaps be the people who are responsible for addressing it? Now, you see, the Bible does teach that the government has a role in alleviating poverty. And the operative word there is the word a. The government has a role. This is most clear, clearly seen in Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, it's a, a prayer to God on behalf of those who are going to serve as the future kings of Israel. It says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. You see, God is calling those who serve in government to govern with righteousness. They are to be men and women of courage who are committed to truth and integrity. And the fact that we put people who don't have truth and integrity into elected office, especially local elected office and state elected office, who are really the people that make the biggest difference in our lives, the fact that we just do that willingly and don't even have a clue who they are, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Those in government are called to treat the poor and their children with justice and mercy, and they are to protect those living in poverty. And how are they to protect them? By Psalm 72, that they are to crush those who oppress the poor. They're to crush them. 
You see, government plays a part in the alleviation of poverty, but they are not the ones who are primarily responsible for its alleviation. As I taught you a couple weeks ago, government's primary role is to deter and punish evil and to reward good. That's what God designed it to do. Not to do the, the myriad of things that are currently happening in our government and governments around the world. And as such, you and I in the church hold the primary responsibility for caring for the poor. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 15. However, there need be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. And you will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-heartened or tight-fisted towards them." What is God telling the ancient Israelites? He is telling them that there is enough to go around. No one has to be poor. But the problem is greed and self-interest. But notice the caveat. Verse 5. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow his commands. If the Israelites honor God, if they live lives of obedience to God's word, if they embrace kindness and mercy and generosity and justice, nobody has to live in poverty. Now, there are some theologians in our, our church family right now who are saying to themselves, but Pastor Mike, that, that's a promise to the nation of Israel some 3,000 years ago, that really doesn't apply to us. Allow me to respond to that critique. We live in the most prosperous nation on the face of the planet. And if Deuteronomy 15 is God's expectation of a bunch of former slaves who've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, Sucking down manna and quail? What in the world could God possibly expect from us? Who live in homes that have heat and air conditioning, who drive cars to the grocery store in order to pick from a hundred different yogurts on the shelf? Who watch movies from an on-demand service? that has 10,000 different titles on an 80-inch television screen, and we sit there and we say to ourselves, there's nothing to watch. Besides, the Old Testament isn't the only place in the Bible where God commands us to provide for the poor. Jesus had a lot to say about providing for the poor. For the sake of time, I'll give you just one. Jesus is eating in the, the home of this fella, and he says to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When is the last time that the Leonzo family, or perhaps your family, invited the poor, the crippled, the lame, or the blind over for dinner? That is a condemnation on Mike and Kathy Leonzo right there. Jesus' friend John chimes in on the subject in 1 John. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be on that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and truth. There's more where that came from, but I think we kind of get the general gist. So how do we do this, or, or better yet, how do we actually do it right? You see, what we're talking about here is far more than just giving people money. Those who have been thoughtfully working for the alleviation of poverty have come to the conclusion that consistently giving money to people doesn't solve poverty. It only perpetuates it. That is why generations of families continue to be stuck in the cycle of welfare. How can anybody possibly think that keeping generations in a cycle of poverty is anything even close to being just? In the book, When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor, the offers, they, they articulate three different levels of, of help for the poor. The first one is the one that we all are familiar with. It is called relief. It's where you stop the bleeding by meeting someone's immediate short-term need. This is what most people do. I saw this the other day. Uh, earlier in the week, I was uh, at, a, at a local Turkey Hill. I pulled into the Turkey Hill, and I noticed that there was a, a, a guy who was standing in front of the red box machine there. He clearly he looked disheveled. Uh, he looked like he, he probably needed something. And, and what I noticed is there was another man who gets out of his car, a man who is, you know, got things all, seems like they got it pretty well together. And, and these two guys, they make eye contact. And I think, oh, that's cool. Uh, the, the guy that's just got out of the car, he's going to kind of engage the guy in front of the red box machine, but, but he quickly turns his face away. And I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of rude. And, and so the guy goes into, uh, the guy that gets out of the car, he goes into the store. And, and, and I'm watching this guy in the store, and, and the guy goes up to the counter, and he's got, got some things that he, he got together. And, uh, and he's paying him, he's making, uh, seems like a pretty nice guy at least, he's making small talk with the clerk, telling her that, hey, it's his day off, he really doesn't have a whole lot to do. And I notice that he flips open his wallet, he's got one of those like clamshell wallets where all the money is held flat and it's in a little clip there. And so I could see that the guy's got like 50 or 60 bucks in his wallet, he's got a couple ones there and he, he pays the, the person. And, and I'm just thinking, man, this guy, he's got time. But he didn't make any time for this guy by the red box machine. I'm like, what a jerk this guy is. And so the guy goes out to the store, and I go out to the store, and, and, and I can see that he's trying to go around the car to kind of avoid going past the guy. But the other guy who's by the red box machine, he engages him. And I can see the guy's a little bit taken back, and he says, hey, 
Can, can you spare me a little bit of money? And so I watched this fellow go over, and I'm thinking like, wow, man, he's got his wallet filled with money. He's surely going to give this guy one of those 20s. And, and he's got stuff in his one hand, and, and so he, he gets his wallet out, and he opens it up, but he, he can't get the money out. So he says to the guy, here, take one of these ones off the top. And I am like, what a jerk. That man was me. I did that. On my day off, with like 80 bucks in my wallet, I didn't give that guy the time of day. I had him pull a $1 bill out of my wallet, and he saw all the rest of the money that was there. I had nothing to do that day. You think a pastor could at least said, hey, why don't we walk over to the McDonald's here? Let me, let me buy you a burger. Let's talk for a little bit. Tell me your story. How does that guy get treated every day? Like an inconvenience. And I did. And I'm willing to bet some of you have seen people just like that. The second step is rehabilitation. This is where the hard work begins. This is when we help to restore people to a functional level so that they can ultimately help in the, their recovery. This is the Bethesda mission. This is Brethren Housing. This is people who are all in. These are places that desperately need volunteers who can, can help because the people that are there, the people who are at Bethesda, the people who are at Brethren Housing and the other ministries in this area, they want to get out of poverty. They're not content with staying where they're at, but they need someone to come alongside of them and help them, help them learn job skills, help them to learn how to interview, help them to, to, to get off of the, the, the drugs or whatever things have been pulling them down. And then the third thing is development. This is where we empower people to ultimately care for themselves. We help them to become workers who not only provide for themselves, but provide for others so that they're not dependent on the government, they're not dependent on charity from anybody else, but they ultimately are charitable. In his book, Jesus' Economy, John Barry, a guy who has committed his life to helping people rise above poverty, says this, there's no doubt and business owners listen to this, that job creation is the number one solution for sustainable poverty alleviation. When a person has a job, they can create a plan for their lives, a plan that doesn't rely on regular financial assistance from other people to sustain it. Jobs give dignity and independence. That is why the Bible emphasizes the importance of work to our well-being. Think about what would happen if the wealthy among us would just create jobs to create work for people. What would happen? You know, what would happen if you don't need someone to clean your house? You, you're happy to do it yourself. 
But what would happen if you go and you find someone who's, who's poor, you teach them how to clean, and, and, and you start to pay them, and you pull them up out of poverty? It takes work. We have to, to help people, to teach them the work, to help them to get a job. Are they going to fail? Yes. Are they going to let us down? Some will, but that is on them, not on us. And their failure is no excuse for us not to try. That has happened numbers of times here at Living Water. We have taken a risk on people, and, and they have failed miserably. But that's on them, not on us. You see, you and I, we actually have to care. We have to do something about it. We can't be satisfied by living some safe, comfortable Christian life of coming to church once a week, hopefully doing our daily quiet time, maybe attending a Bible study or a small group, and if we get really wild, we work in the nursery once a month. See, God desires that, but he desires so much more. Isaiah 58, and I wrap up with this and we'll take the Lord's Supper. It's not this. It's not this what I expect from you. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? How many times have we hid ourselves from people in need? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of your finger, and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters don't fail. Let's pray.